Church, this morning uh, we cross the halfway point in the sermon series that we've been in this summer, working our way through the Minor Prophets. And I, I mentioned that we've just crossed the halfway point here because uh, on two different occasions this week I was asked a question by different folks in the church of, of how many more prophets are there less left to cover or, or how many more weeks are we going to be in this sermon series. And in response to both of those questions, I, I had to ask, uh, what is it that you're getting at? Uh, Are you growing weary of the message of the minor prophets? Do you no longer want to hear the the message from these prophets of old like the people of Israel did not? And they both assured me that that was not the case, that they were relieved, actually. There were several weeks left in this series because they were enjoying it and they, they wanted to hear more. And whether that was their true answer, how they really felt... Or whether they recognized that that was the only possible godly answer that they could give. Or whether they just, knowing that I was the planner and the preacher of this series, did not want to hurt my feelings. I I will never know. But whatever the case may be, from my perspective and, and from my own heart, this has been a really good series so far. And I believe that it's beneficial for us to continue to engage with these largely unknown and unfamiliar passages of Scripture because they still speak an important word to us today. And so as we cross the the halfway point in this series, we are continuing to push ahead today and for the next five weeks. And today as we come to the book of Nahum, we come to what I believe is the great paradox of God in all of the scriptures. For in the opening verses of this book, we read almost simultaneously what is the most difficult and dismissed description of God and of His character that we have in all of the scriptures. And at the same time, in the same message, from the same lips of the same prophet, we are also given the most hopeful and the most helpful description of God and His character that we have in all of the Scriptures. For right out of the gates in this prophecy, in verse 2, Nahum declares that the Lord is avenging and wrathful. Yet in nearly the same breath, five short verses later, he declares that the Lord is good. The Lord is wrathful and the Lord is good. For many, those two cannot go together. They cannot exist beside one another. They seem mutually exclusive. In our culture, the idea of a God of wrath seems outdated and off-putting and frankly just disturbing to people that anyone would believe in a God like that. In a society that places the highest of all values on accepting everyone and everything, There is no room for a God of wrath. A God who is good, people can be okay with, whether they believe in Him or not. It's okay, in their opinion, for others to believe in a God like that. But but not a God who is avenging and wrathful. There could be no goodness to a God of wrath. And yet, this is how God reveals Himself to us through the prophet Nahum. And in order for us to be able to understand not just the book of Nahum, 
But really, the entire story of the Scriptures, the entire story of God's salvation history, we must come to terms with this paradox. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me to the book of Nahum as we consider together the major message of this minor prophet by looking at the goodness of our Lord who is avenging and wrathful and who is good. First, we're going to look at the goodness of our God who is avenging and wrathful. It's important that we understand this because it is part of who our God is. It is part of how He has revealed Himself to us. And it is good news for us that He is this way. Let's consider why. What we learn right at the beginning of this book of Nahum in verse 1 is that this book is an oracle concerning Nineveh. In the prophetic writings of the Scriptures, the word oracle is often used to announce a message of divine judgment. And that is certainly the case here. In the English Standard Version of the Bible, the chapter headings given for the three chapters of Nahum are first God's wrath against Nineveh, then the destruction of Nineveh, and finally a woe to Nineveh. That is what this prophetic message is all about. It is a message of divine judgment from God. And in the course of these 47 verses, Nahum uses some of the strongest language in all of the scriptures to express God's reaction to Nineveh's sin as he delivers a blistering description of the judgment that was soon to fall upon the people of Nineveh. Now, as a brief aside, if the the message uh, about judgment of God falling on the people of Nineveh sounds familiar to you, it should. For it was just two weeks ago that Eric preached to us from the prophet Jonah, in which God's prophet was sent to Nineveh to warn them that in 40 days' time, destruction was going to come. Now, at Jonah's preaching, the people of Nineveh repented, and much to Jonah's chagrin, God was merciful and chose to spare the people of Nineveh. But this oracle against Nineveh, given to us by Nahum, occurred about 150 years after the time of Jonah. And so it appears that Nineveh's repentance, while effective, was not long-lived. God, in His goodness and in His mercy, spared the generation that turned from their evil ways at the preaching of Jonah... But not long after that, they were up to their old tricks again, which were incredibly evil and wicked. Now, as a bit of context, Nineveh was the the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were a passionately pagan people who worshipped a deity named Ishtar, a supposed goddess of fertility, love, war, and sex. And the Assyrians were notorious for their brutality, Towards their enemies. Engravings that have been found from this time in history describe some of the customs of the Assyrians, how they would tear the skin off of their enemies and literally use it as wallpaper in their homes. They would fillet their captives and use their skin to wallpaper and decorate their homes. They would put out their enemies' eyes, they would bore holes through their enemies' jaws. They would cut off their fingers and their lips and their noses. 
And the Assyrians were so powerful and their evil influence stretched so far that the book of Nahum ends by acknowledging, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. They were a terrible people. Nineveh was a bloody city, as described in chapter 3, verse 1. And everyone around them experienced their wickedness. And in response, God's promised destruction of them takes up nearly every word of the book of Nahum. And it is a passionate promise of destruction. Look with me in chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Nahum writes, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. And we see that vengeance and wrath played out in the rest of the book. Look particularly at chapter 3, verses 5 and following. The Lord says, Behold, I am against you and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and, and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. This is a passionate promise of judgment where Nineveh will come face to face with their guilt and their shame, and it will be exposed and they will be condemned for it. And through the rest of Nahum, God promises that Nineveh will become a place of desolation and of ruin. God's judgment on the city and on her people will be total and it will be complete. The prophecy ends with a promise that there will be no easing their hurt and that her wound would be grievous. And at this news, that Nineveh will be utterly destroyed, that the Lord will avenge the wrongs committed by Nineveh, and that He will pour out His wrath upon them for the evil that they had done. In the final verse of the prophecy we read, that all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Everyone cheers at the destruction of Nineveh. This is the climactic moment in the story of the evil Assyrians. This is the moment when when Scar is thrown off the cliff and when Jafar is sent into the genie lamp and when, when Thanos is snapped into oblivion. This is the moment in the story of Assyria where they get paid back for all of the evil that they had done. Where the wrongs they had committed against their neighbors would be made right. Where the injustices suffered by the poor and the vulnerable would be made just. Where the bad guys get what is coming to them and they go down into defeat once and for all. This is a moment that we should cheer. Boom. Take that, Assyria. But we don't really cheer it, do we? In fact, most of us, when we come across this account... Rather than cheer, we cringe and we squirm and we want to overlook and we try to reinterpret and we disregard this account as an ancient relic of an angry Old Testament God. Passages like this are some of the reasons why the Old Testament in general and the the prophets in particular are not often read in churches anymore. Passages like this are some of the reasons why our society isn't a Christian 
society anymore. A God who is avenging and wrathful isn't something that we cheer for nowadays, is it? We want the God of Jonah and not the God of Nahum. And I believe that at least part of the reason why we want the God of Jonah rather than the God of Nahum is because deep down in the depths of our souls, we all know that God's righteous anger and His avenging wrath are not just reserved for those who descend to the same vile depths as Nineveh. God's judgment isn't just for Assyria and for for Babylon and for the, the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world. We might be okay if God's judgment stopped there. But the Bible's unwavering testimony is that God's face is set against all sin of every kind. And that hits much closer to home. Jesus, in His famous Sermon on the Mount, reminds us that we don't have to physically murder someone and fillet their skin in order to be guilty of murdering them. And we don't have to physically engage in sexually immoral acts with others in order to be adulterers ourselves. We don't have to physically be Nineveh to be Nineveh. The testimony of the Bible is that as a result of our fallen human nature, the Bible calls it a sin nature, that we are all Every one of us exposed to the righteous wrath of God against evil in this world. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus that we are all by nature children of wrath. This is perhaps most humbly and profoundly summed up in the the famous story from the early 1900s when, when the London Times ran an article seeking responses to the question, what is wrong with the world? In response to that question, they got many articles written in and letters written in and submissions written in. But the shortest of them came from the famous author G.K. Chesterton, who simply wrote, Dear Sir, I am. I am what is wrong with the world. Now, whether that story is actually true or not is debated. It's likely that his answer was a part of a larger letter that he wrote. But the point is well made. We are all Nineveh. We are all what is wrong with the world. And we all deserve the judgment of God for our sins. And so we don't want the God of Nahum, who is avenging and who is wrathful. We want the God of Jonah, who shows mercy and offers forgiveness. We don't want a God who expresses anger and wrath towards sin. We only want a God who loves us. And while that's understandable, it is not biblical. As R.C. Sproul puts it, if God is holy at all, if God has an ounce of justice in His character, indeed, if God exists as God, How could he possibly be anything else but angry with us? We violate his holiness. We insult his justice. We make light of his grace. 
These things can hardly be pleasing to him. A God of love who has no wrath is no God. He is an idol of our own making, as much as if we carved him out of wood or stone. And what Sproul is reminding us is that God's displeasure and his anger and his wrath towards sin is not a flaw in his character. It is an essential part of the perfection of his character. If God is righteous and just and loving and good, which we all want him to be, then he must hate that which is evil and which harms his creation. And so the Bible rightly records both the kindness and the severity of God. That's Romans 11.22. There is no such thing as a God of Jonah and a God of Nahum. There is no such thing as a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There is only one God. And He was the same yesterday and today and forever. And He has always been. And he will always be firmly against sin and evil in the world that harms his good creation. And if that were the only thing that were true about God, that he is avenging and wrathful, it would be terrible news for all of us who by our very nature are evil. Thanks be to God that is not all that he is. Because Nahum also tells us that the Lord is is good. He is avenging and wrathful, but also, and at the same time, he is good. And we see his goodness in chapter 1, verse 7, and in the second half of this first chapter of Nahum, where we read that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And in the rest of that chapter, God acknowledges that judgment is coming. But in the midst of that judgment, if we will lift our eyes, there is one who is coming, who brings good news, who publishes peace. It's the hope and the promise that in the midst of the judgments of God, peace can be found. The image is as if God is is sending a storm. That he's going to wash and rinse and clean the vileness and the evil and the wickedness from the face of the earth. And in his goodness, God has sent a messenger to warn us of the coming storm and to provide a shelter in which we can be safe in the midst of that storm. And isn't this what God has done over and over and over again throughout history for his people? You think about Noah and the flood. God saw the wickedness on earth and was sorry that he had made man. And so he sent a flood to blot them out, to clean the slate and to wash the earth of evil and start over. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. And in his goodness, God provided an ark to see Noah and his family safely through the storm. Or what about God's people in the land of Egypt? God heard Israel's groaning in their slavery about the evil of their masters in Egypt. And so God sent a storm of plagues to punish the Egyptians for their evil ways. The final plague was a plague of death. But in His goodness, God provided a Passover lamb 
And that anyone who put the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of their house was passed over by the angel of death. The lives of their firstborn were spared. Or what about when the Israelites complained against God and and He sent fiery serpents among them for their wickedness. And the serpents were biting and killing many of them. But God in His goodness had Moses make and lift up a bronze serpent on a pole. And anyone who looked at the bronze serpent would live. These are all just like the Ninevites. There was the goodness of God providing a shelter in the midst of the storm. And aren't all of these ultimately pointers for what God has done for us once and for all in Christ on the cross? For our gospel reading this morning reminded us that God so loved the world That He sent His only Son into the world that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He is the shelter and the refuge of God. Judgment is coming, but God in His goodness sends good news. One who speaks a word of peace. A stronghold in the day of trouble. One in whom we can take refuge. And so upon the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God towards our sin in His own flesh. He was the propitiation for our sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was placed upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Church, this is the hope of the gospel. And it is the only hope that we have. This is the goodness and the good news of God. That in Christ, God has given us a refuge from the storm. That God, in in order to avenge wrongdoing and injustice and to eliminate evil in the world, pours out His wrath. But because of His love for us, He chooses to bear that wrath in Himself, in Christ, rather than to lay it upon us. And so everyone who looks to Him and what He has done on our behalf can be saved. And this offer of shelter from the storm is available to everyone. There are no more enemy nations whose destructions we cheer. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of darkness. We do not want the destruction of nations. We want them to come to repentance and to find shelter from the storm. But we do want the destruction of the spiritual forces of evil. That we all long for. That we all pray for. Deliver us from evil. That we can cheer and celebrate when we see it happening. In small ways, when when God gives victory and freedom from sin in someone's life. And in ultimate ways, when Christ will return and make His enemies His footstool. When the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to harm us again. And when God will make all things new. That is what we want. That is what we need. But it will only ever happen. If God is avenging and wrathful, it only happens if God hates sin so much that he will destroy it forever. It is good for us to have a God of wrath. And it is necessary for us to have a God 
who is good. And the great hope of Nahum is that we have both. A God who will destroy evil in us and in the world. And a God who will protect us through the storms of his judgment by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Church, the prophet Nahum warns us that a storm of judgment is coming upon evil in the world. And he warns us to find our refuge from this storm in the person of Christ. Have you found that refuge? Are you remaining under his shelter? Don't flirt with the storm. Remain under the shelter of Christ. And invite others to join you there, to find that refuge and shelter as well. That your neighbors and your co-workers and your family members and even your enemies may find this refuge from the storm. So that in the end, we can all clap our hands and cheer for God's destruction of evil. May we do so for God's glory and for our good. Amen.